Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted May 26, 2017, we talk with Sari Bashi, Israel and Palestinian Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch, about her recent WPJ blog post, Don't Count States, Respect Rights. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ spring issue, cover line, Fascism Rising. But first, this week's winners and losers report from Ian Bremer, president of Eurasia Group, Global Risk Consultants. Your uh, winners and losers G7 debut. You got four new leaders coming in on this G7 meeting. Actually, the first formal meeting of the G0, if you want to think of it that way. No coordination. UK's Theresa May, winner. I mean, she's doing better on the back uh, of, sadly, this uh, Manchester attack, and uh, her election's coming up soon. She's probably going to do quite well. Italy's Paolo Gentiloni, uh, I guess on balance, you have to say loser. I like the guy a lot personally, but, uh, you know, only going to be weaker coalition going forward with Italy uh, elections. Francis Emmanuel Macron, winner, at least for now. I mean, he showed he can go toe-to-toe, wrist-to-wrist, hand-to-hand against Donald Trump. Like that handshake. America's Donald Trump, uh, winner for now because, I mean, you know, internationally is where he needs to be. When he goes back home, that's when the problems are going to grow again. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. So I'm looking at two state and one state, and I like the one that both parties like. I'm very happy with the one that both parties like. I can live with either one. Uh, I thought for a while the two state looked like it may be the easier of the two. But honestly, if Bibi and if the Palestinians, if Israel and the Palestinians are, are happy, I'm happy. Of course, nobody was really that happy when President Trump appearing with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Bibi Netanyahu, abandoned decades of support for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, since there is no solution that both parties like. Not that previous U.S. policy and international pressure has made much progress toward any solution, as Israeli settlements expanded in Palestinian areas, and both sides and their supporters traded violent attacks and counterattacks. More recently, a senior Palestinian official expressed optimism over a phone call in which he said Trump stressed to President Mahmoud Abbas that the U.S. remained a, quote, strategic partner for real and serious peace. Still, the shakeup Trump's earlier announcement caused to the diplomatic community in the U.S., Europe, and the Middle East could be just what the Israeli-Palestinian conflict needs. So argues Sari Bashi, Israel and Palestinian Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. Her post on the WPJ blog is headlined, Don't Count States, Respect Rights. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Sari Bashi, welcome to World Policy on Air. Hello, and thank you for having me. For decades, you write, Washington's obsession with a two-state solution has not only proved futile, but provided cover for Israeli human rights abuses in the West Bank and Gaza. First, give us your view of what the worst of those abuses currently entail. Sure. I would say it's two major uh, problems. One is the closure of Gaza, which is stifling normal life there and trapping two million people, the majority of whom are children and teenagers. And the second is the expansion of settlements in the West Bank, which is accompanied by a discriminatory regime that privileges and invests 
in uh, Israeli Jewish settlements while restricting the freedom of movement and, in general, the ability to lead normal lives of Palestinian town villages. Give us some examples of how you see Washington's two-state strategy contributing to those abuses or at least conflicting with efforts to diminish them, including approaches at the International Criminal Court. Sure. The problem is not per se the the choice of a two-state solution any more than a one-state solution or a five-state solution would be a problem. The problem is that for the last two decades, uh, a succession of U.S. administrations, Democratic and Republican, have obsessively pursued negotiations toward a a two-state solution and used that obsession to ignore what is happening on the ground. So uh, in 2001, Bill Clinton became the first president to officially embrace a two-state solution. And in, in, the, in those two, the nearly two decades that have taken place since then, the settler population in the West Bank has nearly doubled uh, to more than a half million people. And each time um, human rights activists, uh, European governments bring up the fact that the U.S. should be using its, its considerable political influence at the U.N. and in the diplomatic arena to rein in settlement expansion, the answer has been, well, we don't want to interfere with negotiations toward a two-state solution. And those negotiations have been a bit naive. Um, so a succession of U.S. presidents and secretaries of state have announced a new initiative for peace in the Middle East within nine months within one year, within three years. And in doing so, they've ignored what is happening as the leaders supposedly negotiate peace. What's happening on the ground is making life much more difficult for Palestinians and also for Israelis. Talk specifically, though, about the uh, International Criminal Court, how it figures in uh, possible solutions and in uh, what you consider the, the uh, obstruction of them. Yes. What we need in Israel and Palestine is accountability. Um, So the International Criminal Court has the potential to hold Israel accountable um, for the uh, potential twin crimes of settlement expansion and uh, violations of the laws of war in Gaza. And the reason why my hope is that perhaps a changed or even diminished U.S. role in diplomacy could leave room for initiatives like the International Criminal Court is because the U.S. has been a huge blocker of initiatives that could actually stop some of the abuses on the ground. So the U.S. has um, joined Israel in um, trying to block access and jurisdiction for the International Criminal Court, including in some cases by uh, uh, sanctioning the Palestinian Authority, um, withholding funding and other programs because the Palestinian Authority has gone to the International Criminal Court to request accountability. The U.S. has also um, tried to persuade other European countries to step back um, and not uh, engage in um, potential sanctions, such as, for example, blocking trade from settlements that could actually help inhibit the growth of settlements. And my hope is that if the U.S. really does um, shake things up a little bit by, uh, by pausing its obsessive uh, pursuit of a two-state solution, it could leave room for accountability before the International Criminal Court, for um, economic activity aimed at delegitimizing settlements and and stopping to fund them. There's a whole world of potential that we might see from that that statement that shakes things up a bit. 
How do you read the reported Trump call to Abbas in terms of continued U.S. efforts on the Israel-Palestinian problem? And the fact that Trump has not immediately ordered a provocative shift of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, as uh, he uh, so stressed during his campaign. So most American presidents um, since Bill Clinton have announced that they will move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And then when it actually, when push comes to shove and the decision actually needs to be made, they systematically sign a six-month waiver, uh, which allows them not to do that for security reasons. Trump so far is simply falling in line with the succession of U.S. presidents who have realized that under the current circumstances, with half of Jerusalem occupied, Moving the embassy to Jerusalem would be a political minefield that would probably not be justified in terms of American foreign policy. What would be the key elements of the more decentralized approach you suggest to support the people of this long-disputed region, if not a particular policy on solving the dispute? First of all, I think there's a lot of potential in individuals and corporations taking responsibility for their role in contributing to serious human rights abuses, uh, especially in the West Bank. So in the West Bank, we have a, a settlement industry that discriminates against uh, Palestinian businesses, for example. So uh, what the Israeli government does is invest in businesses in Israeli settlements that are off limits to Palestinians, and it, it, it um, refuses to grant licenses or construction permits to Palestinian towns and villages. The World Bank estimates that those restrictions cost the Palestinian economy $3.5 billion every year, which is about a third of its GDP. And fueling that settlement expansion and those settlement industries are private corporations, including American corporations, that invest in Israeli banks that expand the settlements, that invest in Israeli factories that uh, are, are established on land that has been unlawfully seized from Palestinians. I think that um, more activity uh, on the field of corporate social responsibility, which has already been um, promising, would be helpful if, if shareholders, if consumers and companies would simply take responsibility and decline to conduct business in or with settlements. We might see a drying up of that very, very problematic industry. For a long-term solution, what do you see as the respective advantages and drawbacks of the one-state and two-state solutions as currently envisioned? The most important thing is that human rights are respected, and that's important as a matter of international law, and quite frankly, it's important as a matter of peace and stability, because you're not going to have peace or stability when people are being abused on either side. So if there is one state, then people should be equal. And if there are two states, then we need to have an end to military rule. What we have now is neither. We have a system in which um, Palestinians are subject to the authority of the Israeli military. They don't vote or choose the Israeli leaders who instruct the military how to rule them. And that very undemocratic state of affairs has been taking place for 50 years now. That needs to end. And whatever government, whatever arrangement takes place has to be based on people having, for example, the right to vote, people being equal. So we don't have a situation where we have an Israeli settlement next to a Palestinian village, and the Israeli settlement is allocated four times as much water as the Palestinian village. And the Palestinian village is blocked off from traffic and has to do a 45-minute detour nominally to, to protect the security of that Israeli settlement. That kind of discrimination and abuse needs to stop. 
What about the notion that the opposite of two states is not one state, but revival of the plan by the late King Hussein for a Jordanian confederation with the Palestinians, at least those on the West Bank, with political and economic benefits they don't currently possess? So people have talked a lot about an economic peace, and there's two problems with it. First of all, in all the talk about supposedly improving the economy in, in Palestine so that people would somehow forego political and social rights, the economy has not been approved, improved. Uh, very, very harsh restrictions continue both in the West Bank and Gaza. And in Gaza, 70% of the people are dependent on humanitarian assistance because the borders are closed and they can't engage in, in dignified, productive work. The second problem with economic peace is that financial well-being, even if it were to take place, and I hope it does, cannot replace people's right to dignity, to civil and political rights, to freedom of speech, to freedom of movement. I don't see how a confederation could provide that. Israel and the international community have recognized Gaza and the West Bank as a single territorial unit. There needs to be freedom of movement between those two areas, whether there's one state or two, and Palestinians have the right to self-determination. Self-determination means they get to choose their own government, not go from one military rule to another foreign rule. Any other comments on the situation, past, present, or future? You know, I hope that the Trump administration will at least make us uh, who are dealing with um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict think about things in a new way. Because, you know, it's been 50 years of military occupation, 50 years in which people's basic rights uh, have been, have been um, basically negated. And I think it's the time to start focusing more on human rights. And then let, let's agree on that and then see what political arrangements develop. Sarah Bashi, thank you. Thank you. Sari Bashi is the Israel and Palestinian Advocacy Director at Human Rights Watch. Her post on the WPJ blog is headlined, Don't Count States, Respect Rights. Since we spoke, President Trump has not invoked the two-state solution, even on his first official foreign trip starting in the Middle East. Instead, he envisioned a multi-party peace between Arab states and Israel, but with few specifics except a $110 billion U.S.-Saudi arms deal, the need to block Iranian aggression and exterminate radical Islamic terrorism. The ISIS-linked suicide bombing in Manchester, England, added heft to Trump's appeal. But in Israel, despite diplomatic niceties during his stopover there and his promise to maintain the superiority of Israel's forces, there were Israeli concerns over the Saudi weapons deal, Trump's continued delay on his promise to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, and his disclosure of classified intelligence to Russian officials that could identify a presumed Israeli secret agent behind enemy lines in Syria. Other allies sharing intelligence also had reason for fear over recent leaks from Washington, including Trump's telling Philippines President Duterte that he deployed nuclear submarines off the Korean coast. After U.S. sources disclosed the name of the Manchester bomber, which British government sources called unacceptable, Trump pledged to prosecute leakers. At his visit to NATO, German Chancellor Angela Merkel criticized Trump's wall-building approach to security while he scolded the Allied leaders for stingy defense spending and avoided specific commitment to mutual response to aggression, current Russian provocation being Europe's prime concern. All 28 NATO ambassadors agreed on NATO joining the U.S.-led coalition against ISIS in Syria and Iraq, 
but mainly for training and intelligence, it was reported. Featured in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line Fascism Rising, you'll find numerous views on how corruption of language and distortion of history contribute to dictatorship and how the process can best be fought. Also reports on Trump's savage capitalism, on the infrastructure of counterinsurgency, and on Ukraine, buffer or flashpoint between Russia and the West. And listen next week when our podcast will consider the retro-macho politics that doomed Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombeck, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.